Will the healthcare staffing crisis ever end? We were talking about shortages five years ago, and then things went really crazy during the pandemic. But even as a lot of the economy has returned to normal, healthcare workers are still in very short supply. So do we have to just wait a little bit longer, or is the shortage of healthcare workers going to be with us forever? Welcome to Care Talk, America's home for incisive debate about healthcare business and policy. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. I'm John Driscoll, the president of Walgreens Health. Summer's here, and it's time to choose what to read during those lazy days on the beach. Now, some people are going to pack the latest romance or thriller, but I'll be spending my time reading the Care Talk newsletter, which delves into the thrilling, if not romantic, depths of the healthcare business policy and innovation worlds. Sunscreen? Check. Beach toys? Check. Care Talk newsletter? Double check. Click the link in the description below to subscribe. And as a special bonus, we will randomly select one new subscriber this week to get a free Care Talk baseball cap. So David, 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 this is not a new topic. How big a problem is the healthcare staffing shortage? It's a real problem, John. I was speaking to uh, one of the leaders of a statewide health and hospital association earlier this week, and she told me there are unfilled jobs in every department in a hospital, any kind of a nurse, physician, also administrator, support, cafeteria. It's really, it's, it's pervasive. And they say out of about a million physicians that are out there, the American Association of uh, Medical Colleges says something like 124,000 shortage uh, within a few years, including 50,000 primary care docs, a uh, big shortage of nurses that we talked about. Well, it's, 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 it's worse than that because really it's not, while there's just under a million you know, active people with active license in the US, only about 686,000 are actually practicing. And so you're really looking at, you know, with 100,000 looking to leave, a pretty material hit. And, and the, con- the, the social context here ain't great because of the baby boom. You've got 10,000 people turning Medicare eligible, age 65. Every year, we're not going to ask you your age, David. And that, 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 the, that, that brings with it a bolus of chronic conditions. As America goes from fit to fat, and we continue to have a rapidly growing problem with diabetes and coronary heart disease, the two most dangerous things that are happening, that is you're even more likely to have that as you get older. As America ages, we need to care for it. And the pandemic really burned a lot of folks out. John, you love to blame the old people. And they certainly deserve their degree of blame, especially those having birthdays. Happy birthday, not, you know, but there's also, we got to blame the youngsters too, John, because there's a a lot of uh, the youth that are having trouble, uh, mental health issues, some, you know, stemming from the pandemic. And then at the really early age, John, there is a big increase in the number of autism diagnoses. Those folks are going to need more care and more behavioral health. Up 50%. Up fifty percent. I don't know how, whether that's that's really an explosion in autism, or we're really getting better at diagnosing it. But what that all speaks to is the social burden of healthcare, and ultimately, all of us want to be cared by humans. Well, most of us. Maybe you're happy with a robot, David, but the rest of us really care about that. And let's 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 think about nursing. I mean, there's three million nurses, you know, in, in the country and a substantial proportion of them want to retire and get out of the profession because they're having to deal with more and more demand because of the, 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 when you, you don't have enough staffing, 
in hospitals or in ambulatory care areas. What happens is that the nurses who are there end up having to do more work. And then it's, it's sort of a doom loop. That sucks. You know, it sounds pretty bad. And, you know, one of the problems they have actually of training new nurses, it's some people want to go to nursing school, but, you know, being they don't pay the nursing faculty enough. You can make, you know, double or triple just working as a nurse. Well, it's exactly. I mean, the problem with the shortage is it's perverse economics because nurse wages have gone up at a time when the difference between a nurse teacher and a nurse is, to your point, two to three X. And while we are in a crisis of needing nurses, we don't have enough slots in nursing schools because of that and also because of the the way things are chartered and accredited. But just in the last few years, we've turned away eight, over 80,000, David, candidates to become nursing just because there weren't enough slots. So let's let's talk a, a little bit more about, you know, let's throw a, more, a couple more problems on the heat before we start talking about solutions. So, you know, there's another problem too, which is reduced immigration. You used to have more nurses that were, you know, coming in as, as immigrants. Uh, you've also got people living longer, you know, how dare they? Not just turning 65, John, but keeping going, uh, you know, for uh, for a while. Um, and so you've got, you know, you've got other problems on that side too. Stay on that immigration point because that's really a major problem. We've got actually a solution for allowing tech workers to come into the United States. We've got a, we used to have an ability to get bipartisan agreement to bring in doctors and nurses from other parts of the world. We happen to be the employer of choice for healthcare workers around the world because we pay more than anybody else. And it's a pretty decent place to live, the United States of America. And yet, and yet we can't get bipartisan agreement. There are estimates of hundreds of thousands of doctors and nurses in queue who are qualified, trained, and in some cases have been in practice for a while who would love to move to the United States. And we just can't move the, we can't move the, the structural impediments to allowing them. But I, I do think that we're getting to point, the, a breaking point, David. You look at Ashner Health System, one of the leading health systems in, in uh, New Orleans, you know, they had a thousand openings, a massive system. It's a small number of openings, but they had to close a hundred beds. And if we had to keep start, if we start to see that demand shrinking capacity to care. I do think some of these things are going to have, or will move. All right. I mean, the one other thing too, John, is a low birth rate if we don't have immigration now. And I know you've done your part and I've done my part and I'm planning to have any more kids. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to make it official here on the, uh, on the Care Talk podcast, but, uh, you know, that's another solution. We'll, we'll say, I'll, I'll let you take the fifth on that as long as the constitution still and not, hasn't been suspended. So let's talk about, that's enough about problems, John. How about some solutions? What can well, be done? I, What's being I, done? I, I think that there's a, I mean, one of the most interesting aspects of generative AI is, you know, not the stuff you read about, but the stuff that really can solve substantial problems. An enormous amount of money is spent and time is spent and labor time is spent on back office work, on documentation, on reconciliation. And those are, those are rules-driven problems where if you can get them into a generative AI context, you could actually train a model to solve those problems faster. I think there's a big opportunity for generative AI and AI in general in the diagnosis area where they could be augmenting the good work of doctors and nurses and being a tool at the fingertips. So if you think about back office and diagnosis, I think that uh, artificial intelligence can really augment meaningful care and scale it and potentially actually help extend the work of doctors and nurses. That makes sense, John. You know, the thing about generative AI, of course, is it can uh, hallucinate 
Uh, and so maybe that's what, you know, that's what maybe some of these claims processing needs. I, I saw an article in the Wall Street Journal, John, they're talking about in Silicon Valley, the big thing is psychedelics too. So it may not just, not just the generative AI that's well, hallucinating. I, I, you, you make, you, in the midst of a silly point, you make an important one, which is the models have to be trained. But the nice thing about most of this, these, these, what, if it's back office reconciliation and documentation, you know, all, you can train those models based on activity you've currently got. You're not asking it to, you know, write, write a, write a sonnet for you. Um, and so you can test it. You can, you can actually test what the model creates against what the people with a conventional computer can create. And that's how you actually train these models and put guardrails around it. I think same thing with diagnosis. The diagnosis isn't the AI can't or shouldn't, I don't, in my view, based on where we are today, replace the nurse or the doctor. But with, in the same way that we had physician extenders who were modestly trained, but specifically trained around specific, you know, diagnosis and, and support skills, we could have, you know, physician extenders that are, that are, that are, that are, that are, that are software based. I mean, I, I think that's very doable. I mean, you don't have to get into R2D2 category. Uh, uh, Dave, you, you don't, you're, you're robotic friend. We don't need to get into that. I was going to get into that, John, like one of those things, I could have like an extender for my arm as well. I could like, you know, go over and I could stretch and I could reach a patient without even have to walk to their room. But John, one of the things that actually, you know, hospitals, unlike some other businesses have actually, they've had to stay open. They've had to solve the problem on a short-term basis. They, you can't just close an emergency room down and say, yeah, I couldn't find enough staff. You know, that, that's a very extreme thing. So what have they done? Well, they've had travel nurses and that's been, you know, like triple the price. Well, that's a disaster. Why is it a disaster, John? Well, because a travel nurse is basically your your filling. You know, the industry grew up as sort of surge capacity nursing. Like if you had a crisis in Oklahoma, the the Tulsa hospital would hire someone for a couple of months, and so by definition, they would pay a lot more because you're asking someone to travel. It's on demand, and so you that the uh, it's sort of an an emergency. Well, during the, the 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 public health emergency and the COVID epidemic. What happened is that became normal course, and it has systematically increased the costs of nurses. I mean, typical nurse costs for hospitals over the last few years are up 60 to 80% because of the demand on nurses. But the rates for travel nurses, those capacity, those folks who kind of extended the capacity of hospitals, they've gone up, up six to seven X or six to 700%. And so, and and inevitably, when that happens, it becomes a good business. So investors followed in, and they're trying to trying to get more nurses to leave their jobs and travel, which creates more slots. I mean, so it's uh, it's 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 um, uh, demand for a new investment machine actually creating more demand for itself by stealing nurses from posts. It's a it's a really bad. It's again, it's a it's a it's a doom loop. And I, I think there's there are ways around it by paying nurses fairly and giving them really stable jobs. I mean, I, I think that what this speaks to is the hospitals and care system needing to figure out better ways to care for doctors and nurses because they don't feel well cared for. They don't feel, uh, I think, as much respect and connection. And, and inevitably in a crisis, that's going to happen. But um, you know, this, this has got to start with, uh, uh, the, with the leadership and management of the hospitals. Uh, the other thing, David, is the job has gotten harder. I mean, there are violent incidents every day in nearly every city hospital in America. And that was not true before the public health emergency. John, there are, there's another rule for uh, technology here. You know, one of the big issues uh, for nurses and other healthcare professionals has been staffing. You know, staffing is, a, is actually remarkably complex uh, from, 
even just a mathematical standpoint, never mind sort of the relationships and, you know, such and such needs to be here for an appointment, whatever. Um, but that's actually something that has been addressed in other industries, like in transportation. If you think about, you know, the ability to call an Uber uh, or Lyft um, on demand, it's similar. Some of the same technologies are actually starting to be used in hospitals uh, instead of just saying, like, here's my rigid shift and here's your schedule uh, for the week. That's something that can be done. So that's happening even now. Um, longer term, you know, there are some things that can be done to sort of expand the supply. And I know some of the hospital associations are trying to actually encourage more people to go into healthcare. Uh, there are government programs. There, there's no, but there's, but there's not enough slots, David. I mean, you've got, you know, you don't have enough residency programs because those are, those are the training programs after medical school that lead to that, that are the actual practice of doctors. And that's because it's funded by Medicare, which is running out of money. You don't have enough slots in nursing schools because there aren't enough professors. I mean, if, if the government's really going to get involved here, they've really got to make a systematic investment, you know, by, uh, I think that, that you know, we're, we're going to be losing a material amount of doctors and nurses by 2030. And that's a massive problem. All right, John. Well, so you won't let me do, you won't let me tick off the run of the mill solution. Should we go a little more radical? Sure. All right. So one thing is, you know, so I, you know, I, I've been reading the Wall Street Journal, John. I can't afford the subscription anymore, so I must have just seen a copy on a bus bench or something. But in addition to the uh, article about uh, the psychedelics, I saw something about people working until their 80s, and uh, in some cases to their 90s. And I think that the, um, you know, they could, we should raise the retirement age and get people to, you know, hang. Don't get the idea that you have to stop working when you're 60 or, or 65. Let people continue working. So, so that's that's that that's an okay idea, but that's a, that's a patch. I mean, it's it's sort of like paying nurses a little bit more to to not leave the workforce. Like, we need to systematically increase the number of nurses and doctors because we've got an older population, and we've got to do it through some combination of increasing the number of resources to be able to go to school, and also, I think, improving our immigration policy. We could we could I mean the amount of debt also that a lot of doctors and nurses have in order to get educated. Is insane. We need to. We could easily make being a doctor uh, a, a lot more affordable, which could actually help encourage more and more, particularly diverse populations, to pick it as a career. Now, there are some levers that government should use, but we're not going to. Our healthcare costs will go up if we don't care for the most vulnerable among us. And so, I, I think this is a critical structural problem. And you can have all your gray-haired friends. Be, you know, I, I don't want them doing surgery on me, Dave. Um, but I think that, that that will help. But it's a it's a modest patch for a major problem. Well, John, another thing I know you hate drugs, but one thing if we don't need staff for someone to you know to take a pill, and you know, for example, some of these weight loss drugs. If a lot of the chronic illnesses are caused by people being overweight, maybe we should be pushing everybody to be on a weight loss drug, and then maybe that'll reduce the need for healthcare staff to take care of them. Well, let's hey, – Dave, hey, hey, Dave, you're just bouncing along the wall, off the walls here. Like Ozempic, Majero, like we don't know the long-term effect of the GLP-1s, these drugs that are that – are, that, that can allow you to lose a lot of weight fast. I mean, Fenfen could too. I mean, let's, let's hit the pause button on this. Everybody is using it as a lifestyle drug when it was really meant for people who were morbidly obese and, 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 you know, and, 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 were, and were clinically in a situation where you had to take that drug. I, I'm, I'm really nervous about – um, the popular explosion of Eozempic, the, the categories, the GLP-1s that um, show great short-term results, but every great weight loss drug has shown great short-term results, and most of them have had to, some corollary challenges. So I, I, I don't think that's a solution, and it just 
it, um, you know, honestly, that's a, a <laughs> all right. I got another one, John. So thank you. All right. Okay. Ultra processed foods. So a big problem is what people eat. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you should go back to eat and go totally. gather type stuff. Now you're talking, now you're talking my language. I mean, if you think about this, the, 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 we in the farm bill every couple of years authorize a bill that subsidizes the worst kinds of, you know, corn and soy, things that actually keep that, that bring the cost down of things like sugar and corn that are directly related to our diabetes problem. There are, there are the most of the major, uh, pain points in our healthcare system, coronary heart disease and diabetes are directly related to diet. And if we can get our arms around diet, uh, I think we, we saw when people talk about diet and lifestyle, it's really diet. I mean, and people don't know what they don't know. I mean, we don't actually invest in, although CMMI is starting to invest in um, programs in diet-related, diet-sensitive chronic disease, which are all the major chronic diseases. Um, you know, uh, my wife's company, Nourished Rx, has had some great results with Somali Medicaid moms in, many, in Minnesota at, at within a few months, really materially changing the curve of premature birth. I mean, there are, there are, they're, they're seeing results in with coronary heart disease. And these are possible, but we need to really get at the government funding the wrong subsidies in agriculture that create uh, the big, the, the wrong problems in our healthcare system. Well, John, we don't normally break news on this uh, on this show. However, I think you have, you've just indirectly said that you are not going to be the 57th uh, candidate for the Republican nomination for president with what you just said about Iowa and corn. So, uh, all right, you heard it here first. So, John, the other thing is, let's just finish it up and talk about, you know, we're talking about the U.S. and we have talked about immigration as a solution, but immigration to the U.S. of healthcare workers is a problem for people in other countries. You know, they have the healthcare staffing shortages too. What do you think about that? I, I we, uh, you know, it, I think we need to solve our own problems. Honestly, I, I think that we ought to be willing to educate the world, but we need to solve the problems in front of us. And I think that that's 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 job one. Once we solve our problems, I think we should extend the reach of our education and support to any other system in the world. And we can do that largely through the, the, the best medical education, the best medical schools and educational system in the world, which is in the U.S. But we have to solve this problem, David, or it's going to directly relate to the – it's going to directly relate to um, lifespan in the U.S. I mean, it's, the, it's, that, it's, that, it's, that, it's that critical. Well, that's it for yet another episode of Care Talk. Do you have a topic that you'd like John and me to discuss on this show? Uh, some important healthcare business or policy issue that we've neglected or you just want to hear more about, we'd love to hear from you. Drop a note to me, david at caretalkpodcast.com. If we use your idea, we will say hi on the show and a thank you and even send you something special from the Care Talk merch store. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group and not a candidate for any office. And I'm John Driscoll, the president of Walgreens Health. If you like what you heard, you didn't. We'd really love it if you subscribe on your favorite service.